we talked and we thought, you know, Black History Month is, is out there. Maybe we need an LGBT History Month and maybe this is the time to try it. So 2004, we go to the Department of Education. We tell them their ideas. They're not terribly interested. We tell them the kernel, which we need a web page, which will have some resources on it. And it will have a calendar. And the calendar was really important to us that we could have a calendar on there so everybody could put their events on because we didn't have the capacity or even the wish to be running this. What we wanted to do was to facilitate people doing their own thing. Hi, I'm Adam. Hello, I'm Joan. Welcome to Pride and Progress, a podcast that celebrates the progress of LGBT plus inclusion in education. In each episode, we speak with LGBT plus people and allies. We hear their stories, discuss what they're doing to make educational spaces more inclusive and celebrate the power of diversity. Hello, and welcome to season two of Pride and Progress. We can't think of a better guest to both help launch season two and celebrate LGBT plus history month than the incredible Sue Sanders. Sue uses she, her pronouns and is the chair of the Schools Out UK charity, as well as the co-founder of LGBT plus history month back in 2004. Sue has a wealth of experience of working in schools and was instrumental in setting up the first LGBT independent advisory group to Scotland Yard in 2000. She has served on many advisory boards in the criminal justice system, raising LGBT issues, as well as ensuring there's an understanding of the interrelation of all discriminated groups. Sue has been the recipient of many awards. In February 2015, she received an emeritus professorship from the Harvey Milk School, and in 2019 was awarded with a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Rainbow Honours Board. We are also delighted to be joined by Lynn Nichols, who uses she, her pronouns, and is the Chair of Trustees for Schools Out, as well as a speaker for Diversity Role Models. It is our great pleasure to welcome Sue and Lynn to the podcast. Thank you both so much for joining us. Wow, what an introduction. So many brilliant things to, to get into and to discuss today. But I want to begin by travelling back, Sue. Um, I know that you trained as a drama teacher and have taught in schools and universities across the UK and Australia. Could you tell us a little bit about how teaching began for you? <laughs> well, yes. I mean, it, it was a, it's very weird. I mean, I was thinking about this and I've been listening to some of your other podcasts, which have been very exciting to hear other people's journeys. Um, it's been very touching to hear them. Um, I'm 75 in March, so we're talking a long time ago. Um, so I, I was trained um, I, at, at New College of Speech and Drama um, way back in the, in the sort of late 60s, early 90s, early 70s. Um, and I, I chose to go there because they had a course which enabled you to learn about theatre and acting and directing, but also gave you a teacher's certificate. Now, it was, a, it was a total miracle that I got in there because I failed my 11 plus. Um, my parents got me into a grammar school by the back door uh, because my father was a teacher. And I have to say a brilliant teacher. I mean, he was really amazing. I went to the same school that he taught at, which was a problem. Um, and I was actually in his class for a year, which on some levels was amazing and on other levels horrendous. My problem has been all the way through my educational life, I think, um, I clearly have some difficulties learning um, and also in, in social interaction. So there were three of us in that school who were kids of teachers. The other two were very popular, very thin and very beautiful. 
I was unpopular and pretty fat and not getting on very well academically at all, whereas the other two did. So as I say, that my parents got me into the grammar school by a back door. Two years later, I was kicked out by the front door. They then put me into a private school, which tried to get to me to be a young lady, academically crap, Um, not very happy there either. And then fortuitously, there were my parents knew a pair of teachers who were living opposite us, who were teaching in the uh, comprehensive school just up the road, which was a mixed comprehensive school. And they convinced my mother to give me a further chance educationally. So I went off to this comprehensive school called Mayfield and met the head there. And she gave me a test and she then rang up afterwards and said, well, when you meet Sue, she appears to be quite intelligent, but on paper, she's virtually illiterate. We'll take her. She's a challenge, Um, which was kind of interesting. So they put me back a year. So I had a two full years before to get my O-levels. And what was interesting again was I went into this into this classroom and, and met these young women. And for the first time in my life, I was suddenly accepted, liked and welcomed. I had this amazing first day and it felt like I had come home and it was quite extraordinary. And then the next day I went into school and they said, oh, we made a mistake. You don't belong in this form. You belong in this one. So they took me to this other classroom. And within 10 minutes, I was being bullied again. So it was really weird. I have no idea what I was giving off that I was having such difficulty um, in, in social interaction with other people. So I then went back the the third day to the school and said, look, I can't possibly be in that classroom. I need to be in the the form that you put me in, first of all. And it was one of those magic moments where if something hadn't happened, then I don't know where I'd be. I spoke to the senior mistress, the deputy head, and they were both saying, no, you've got to go back to that classroom. And then Margaret Miles, the head, walked into this room where I was desperately trying to convince them I needed to be in that other room. And she looked at me and she said, it's going to be very hard. And I said, I'm aware of that. But, you know, if if I can't get back into that class, I I don't want to be in the school. And she said, all right, on your own head, be it. And that that decision was was absolutely pivotal in my life in a way. Um, They had a brilliant drama um, department in that school. And very quickly, I became part of that drama department. I then set up class. drama clubs for kids in, in, in the first, second and third years. Um, I worked with, with, the, with the drama teacher. We put on lots of wonderful productions. Some I, some I acted in, some I was stars in, some I sort of helped direct. And then we linked up with a, the boys school, um, comprehensive school, and we did productions with them and we took one production to Amsterdam. So I suddenly found confidence and abilities in this amazing world of theatre and drama. So that, became something for me I wanted to get into theatre but of course I had middle class parents who said oh no theatre not a good idea Um, but you know we want you to have a a much more safer profession so once I discovered there were these colleges where you could have theatre and a theatre and a a teaching certificate I thought grand I took my A-levels and then only got O-level passes in my A-levels so technically I should not have been allowed into those colleges but fortuitously all the colleges I applied for offered me places. I then told them I'd failed my A-levels and they all said, doesn't matter. We want you, you, you may have to resit or whatever. And I re- negotiated with them all and then ended up at the new College of Speech, Speech and Drama, which no longer exists. It's part of Middlesex University. So three years there, learning about teaching, 
And one of the things that I did just before I, I went into teaching, every every holiday I, at school and everything, I worked to, to, to get pocket money, et cetera. But before I went to college, I got this extraordinary job of teach of, of selling encyclopedias door to door, cold selling encyclopedias door to door. And they taught us a script. And they would have a, every afternoon where you would sit down and you would learn this script and you would do all sorts of exercises, basically getting the adrenaline up and excitement up. And then they put you in a car, you drive off to goddess alone knows where, and you would knock on doors and you would sell encyclopedias. And it was on commission only. So if you didn't sell anything, you didn't earn anything. And I have to say that was such a powerful learning experience of selling and teaching and theatre, I think are all very much on a continuum. They're all part of that process of, of performance. Um, and I sold enough encyclopedias and they were expensive at that time. I mean, they weren't cheap um, enough to buy myself a motorbike so I could you know, travel easily because I knew I'd be working late at the college and I would want to get home safe and to, to earn some money to sort of supplement my grant. And that was such a powerful learning experience, sort of cold knocking on a door, somebody opening the door and then getting their, their interest and, and confidence in you enough for you to enter their home and then flog them a very expensive set of encyclopedias. So I think that taught me as much as they taught me about teaching, which wasn't a lot, there was much more around theatre. So I wanted to get into theatre, but of course, you've got to have, if it's no point just doing the three years teacher training. And this is before PGCs and anything like that. I mean, when I listen to teachers now, I think, my goddess, the work that they have to do now and the processes and the academia is so much, you know, completely different to what I went through. But I had to do a year's teaching to actually, you know, get my, my teaching certificate and be a qualified teacher. So I found this um, school in Southeast London, all girls school, and it had a 10 day timetable and it was on three sites and I was the only drama teacher. So I would have to zip round three sites on my motorbike and find and, and teach. And I think I taught over 2000 kids every 10 days, which was a bit of a challenge. I think it's one of the reasons why my memory for names is not as good as it could be now. That really did mind blow me. But of course, one of the interesting things was that at that, that stage, you weren't allowed to wear trousers in schools. So I really had to work hard to change the head's um, idea that it was perfectly acceptable for a woman to wear trousers. It had to, and eventually she agreed. I mean, I was saying, look, I'm driving a motorbike around three sites. I'm working in, in, in PE people are allowed to wear trousers, for heaven's sake. And, you know, when you're doing drama and you're working around, often the kids are working on the floor and I'm walking around. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, it makes sense to, to wear trousers. So eventually she said yes. But, it, you know, it, it seems extraordinary to me to think you know, where we've moved on now, that I had to fight to wear trousers as a teacher, you know, back then. I was partially out. So when I first started teaching, um, when the questions came up about social life, etc., I tried to change he, she to he. I wasn't very good at it and soon forgot. And I was living with my then lover very near the school. So um, that was seemed to be very silly after a while and then I just thought well, this is daft and then I came out to the staff and kids I think are intuitive about picking stuff up now we are talking about a very different time we talk about the invisibility of LGBT people now but it's a very different invisibility now in the in in the 21st century as it was back then in the late 60s and early 70s we're talking about a time when <sighs> It's very difficult to explain it in a way, but it just wasn't mentioned. I mean, there was nothing on media. 
there was nothing in the in on on television there was nothing especially for lesbians i mean we had a few gay men out um who often said they weren't um or were very were producing very anti-gay stuff i mean the, the one thing that that i hold on to was there was an amazing um radio show called round the horn and in that you had two gay men talking polari and my father, who was at that point very homophobic, um, and my mother fairly homophobic, we would all sit around on a Sunday lunchtime and listen to this program and fall about laughing um, because it was very funny. But there was something that sort of twitched with me and thought there is something very special about this. And of course, later on, I learned why it was so special. So two years teaching at this all girls school, one of the things that I found was heartwarming was that the, the young women who absolutely adored drama and did well, and when I put on productions, shone and were stars, were of course not unlike me as a kid, they were the problem kids. They were the kids that when I went into the staff room, the teachers would complain about. Um, but then they would shine in my drama productions and the teachers had to rethink about you know, who these kids were. And I think that that for me is one of the exciting things about what what a, a drama can do. They did it for me and then I could see it, you know, doing it for other youngsters. So two years at Catford County and then I had linked up with the Inner London Education Authority at that stage had drama inspectors. And I met with them and they ran courses every Easter for drama teachers, most of whom hadn't had the experience that I had of going to a very specific you know, drama college. Um, and we did all sorts of wonderful stuff, looking at how to teach drama, doing improvisations ourselves and everything else. And the inspector came up to me after a couple of years and said, we would like you to go to a further education college, which has got a, um, a, a place at the moment. And we'd like to put you in there because we think, you know, you could really do some great stuff with in, in further education. So I said, OK, that sounds interesting. So off I went. And so I was then dealing with a very different group of students. They were sort of 16 plus very international, um, quite intriguing. Staff were very left wing. And at that point, my politics were all over the place, um, not very left wing. And the, the where often in, in a college or a university, you have a chance to explore politics in theatre. You don't have a chance to do anything like that. You're, 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 you know, you're working all the hours a goddess sends to put on productions and everything else. So politics hadn't quite touched me then. But these teachers, some of them were left wing, some of them were actually communists. And so they began getting me thinking about socialism and left wing politics and all the rest of it. And I worked with the students with some scripted shows. And also we worked with improvisational and getting them to do their own stuff and doing improvising, etc. So that was a very interesting two years. I was completely out in, with them, um, with both the students and, and, and the both the staff and the students. Now, having lived in London and and you know, grown up in London and gone to college in London. Um, I think what's interesting is, and I think, you know, as, as, a, as somebody who then learned to be a therapist, looking back on myself, I think there was a part of me that needed to sort of move away. And I mean, most people move to London to find themselves. I was living in London. And I think I'd probably needed to get, get out of London and get near, get away from my parents a bit, et cetera. Although I hadn't been living with my parents since I went to college. Um, I met and fell in love with two Australians. One ignored me and one we fell in love together and I then went over to Australia. And it was an amazing experience. When I went to Australia, it was a place where 
nobody went because nobody nothing was very exciting was happening i mean it was much later it became a much more exciting place um and i was with a um the woman i had a relationship with was a very well-known artist and she wasn't out in fact she was still married so we had to be quite careful but i wrote an article for a um, weekly paper about the advantages of drama teaching because there wasn't much drama teaching going on in, in Australia at that time so I wanted to get them to think about what drama teaching could do the advantage of, is, of it etc because when I applied to schools for jobs there were no drama jobs but there were English and history jobs and there was no way I could teach you know history I mean I'd have to learn a whole lot so I thought no this isn't my place so I wrote this article and it was picked up by the corrective services which was kind of interesting and they contacted me and they wanted me to go into a home for young people who had gone on the wrong side of the law and to work with the staff of that school and get them to think about how to use creativity and how to deal more socially with those youngsters. So that was a very interesting process. And I worked with that. And then having made the links with the corrective services, but at the same time, I was linking up with with with. Um, a whole group of women liberationists, um, feminists. I began to find feminism in, in Sydney, which was truly exciting. And the two sort of got together uh, in, in my mind. And I began to think about how we can use sort of feminism and, and the socialism that was beginning to get in my head and various other things. So I'm slightly out of kilter with this because I'm trying to put, put it all together and fast. But one of the things I did was to find that apply to the only women's prison, which was the Mullawa prison, to deliver um, creative writing. Now, I had the backing of the corrective services, so I didn't quite have to apply. I just had to sort of, they pushed me in there, but they had to be, I had to be seen by the, by the head of the prison services. So I got in there and I began teaching one night a week, creative writing and drama with the, with the women prisoners. At the same time, I then saw a, advert amazingly for two schools who did want drama but when I went along I found that one school actually wanted to keep winning the Shakespeare theatre productions that they had always won very posh school um, Church of England on the North Shore which is a posh area it was an extraordinarily high salary I was chatting away with this head she was clearly she wanted me I was not feeling comfortable because it was so much money so I let it slip that I was teaching in the women's prison well, I've never been shown out of a room so quickly. That was it. Badoink. No, thank you. Bye bye. So I thought, well, that was a near miss. Good. I'm glad I didn't get there because that would have been very difficult. So I then went to the other school, which was a Catholic school. And I met the um, mother superior and we had a chat. And she was clearly not sure whether to pick me up or not. And then I told her I was teaching in the women's prison. Oh, oh, well, that's wonderful. Oh, yes. You've... And so it was so interesting to see the difference and sort of blows some stereotypes in a way. So I taught in this um, Catholic girls' school, and at the same time I was teaching the women's prison one night a week. So I then came up with this idea of working with the young women in the senior schools to produce some material together and to do a show. So I got some material that the pr women prisoners had written, brought that back to the youngsters, the youngsters wrote their own stuff and we did all sorts sort of found poems and articles and things, put it all together and made a show and took it into the women's prison. And a lot of stereotypes were blown that night. Um, 
that when you have a show in a women's in a, in a prison everything stops everybody has to go into the show and and into the hall and to see it all so it meant that lots of people weren't doing their billiards or whatever else so there was a there's there's tension in the room now my women had tried to get the message out that it'll be all right the wardens you could see were standing around clearly so chuffed that they were going to be bored out of their brain the warden's relationship with the women was dreadful i mean they would they would actually say to the women's prisoners, I hadn't arrived and delay the start of the lessons when they could see that I was standing by the gate. So there was this terrific tension between me and the wardens. So the show starts and what's beautiful is you can just see the shift of attitudes from the women prisoners who were thinking, oh, this is gonna be a waste of time to getting all very excited and the wardens from T, she, they're going to suffer to fury that everything was going so well. So that was an amazing experience for the prisoners and for the youngsters. The wardens then got together and threatened to go on strike if I wasn't sacked. So I was sacked, but what we did was we then linked the women, the, the prison up with a theater company, which would make it much more difficult for them to you know, pick on one person and they had it, you know, they built it up much, much stronger. So that was fascinating. And one of the things that was also going on with the feminist group that I was working with, there was a whole group that was working with looking at how the whole experience of, of how women were treated in prison. And there was a particular woman called Sandra Wilson who had been in prison on Her Majesty's pleasure, which meant that every year she had to find out whether she was going to be in jail for another year. She didn't ever get a sentence. And they were working to campaigning to go try and get her free or at least, you know, be treated better and she came to my class and eventually we one of the things that was happening was in male prisons when you were getting near to being released you would go into a halfway house you would get treated differently you might have a day out in, in the outside world none of that happened in this women's prison and the, the Malawa coped with all women's prisoners around the whole of New South Wales so all women were getting a really bad deal so with the work that the women against um, the women working on the whole issue of women in prison, eventually we had an effect and Sandy was given the chance to have go into a halfway house, which they started building on the um, campus of the prison. Sandy went in there and then she was given the day off a chance to go out. Now, she'd been in jail by this stage for probably something like 25 years. And she was in my care for the day. So I took her out and what did she want to see? She wanted to go and see One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> that was a film I really hadn't wanted to see because so, I knew it would be hard. It was even harder sitting next to Sandy watching that film because of course it was very much her experience of what she'd gone through because she had been um, told that she was mad. She'd gone to a, um, into an insane asylum and eventually had been moved into prison. So all this experience of me working with both theater and education and prisons and corrective services were incredibly exciting and also was teaching me so much. And working with the feminists in, in, in Australia was incredible. And, and when I eventually I came back, I mean, I, I also taught um, in two teacher training colleges, um, enabling, trying to teach teachers how to be drama teachers. And, one of the, the way I sort of did it was working with them, teaching them drama at their level, but constantly stopping and saying, okay, why did you do this? 
how has this affected you? What did I do to enable you to get to there or to think that? So we were constantly analyzing how how we worked, which was really a fascinating way and taught me a lot about what I was doing and not doing. So we were sort of learning together how to teach drama. And I did that in, in two teacher training colleges in, in, in Sydney. When I finally came back to London, and I was there for probably about 10 years, um, the first job I got was um, the theatre coordinator of the Oval House, which was a fringe theatre um, in southeast London. And that was a very interesting experience, sort of bringing in theatre, going around. And, and theatre at that stage was really exciting. So we're talking 1979 that I went to, to the Oval House. And fringe theatre at that point was really rich, masses of really exciting work going down, black theatre, women's theatre, uh, theatre exploring LGBT issues, disability issues, a lot of political theatre, which was really exciting. And my job was to go off, look at all this, and then book it and bring it back to the Oval. So incredibly you know, exciting and useful. I was there for a year, and then I had met somebody who I'd known in Australia, who was teaching in um, so Newington School at the time. And she had been thinking about what she had learned in Australia around feminism and education and everything else. And we began talking about what was happening to you know, girls' education, because at that stage, it was so clear girls were having a really rough deal. So we dreamed up this, um, project which we got funding for um, which was looking at how girls coped in schools and what was what was disenabling them to to, to to work effectively in schools so we worked in her school we worked in the local couple of other schools and we sort of worked with teachers we worked with the kids and we came up with a with a whole concept of how to enable kids to girls to be more effective and one of the things that we came up with was that in fact, we really felt that the whole concept of single sex schools was a severe problem. And what we needed was mixed schools, but would then give people the chance to move into groups which, which, which at that point we were still very gender specific. And I think one of the exciting things if we did this work now, we would probably think about doing it slightly differently. But what we could see was boys schools were underused, mixed schools were overused and girls' schools were overused because parents wanted, didn't want their necessarily their boys just to go to all boys' schools. They wanted them to go to a place, a mixed school, where they would actually have that whole experience of meeting young women and would be socialized by them. And interestingly enough, there'd been a brilliant book by a woman called Anne Summers in an Australia, and it's an unfortunate name for people here in England because that's linked with something else, but in you know, this was this woman's name, Anne Summers, and she wrote this brilliant book, and we talked about it, I met her, called Damned Whores and God's Police, which was looking at what was happening in Australia when we sent all those convicts off there. And once all these men were out there, they suddenly realized that, that you know, the, the socialization was horrendous. They were doing, you know, even when they got released from their prison sentence in Australia, they were doing dreadful things. And they came up with the idea we should be shipping women out to be their wives and that will tame them. They actually use that word. So that whole concept of how women are supposed to socialize men. So we had real difficulties with that, as you can imagine, as feminists. So we were saying, you know, let's get rid of single sex schools. Let's have mixed schools. But within those mixed schools have spaces where people can actually have lessons, have time, which are in, in, in more gender appropriate. So women could be in a separate space for certain things and boys can be in a separate space for certain things. Well, that's never happened. But it was an, inter it was an interesting project. 
Um, and that led me on to doing more um, work. And by that stage, I was doing work in, in theatre. I was directing in, in with, with lesbian theatre. I was directing with a disability company. I was working with um, a company that was um, all ex-prisoners. So sort of life was very interesting at that point. And one of the things that's really interesting was people think Cameron is, is better than Thatcher. Well, this is under Thatcher. But at that time, I could squat. I was squatting in Brixton and I, I was on the dole and I could do all this incredibly exciting, creative work on the dole because I didn't have to go into the dole office every five minutes, which, of course, you do now. So under camera, and you could, it's illegal to squat and the dole, you know, getting the dole is horrendous. So it's really interesting when you look at, you know, the different phases of, of, of Toryism and conservatism. So I then began to think about, well, this, this, I'm doing all sorts of bits and pieces. Where am I going? And at this point, I began to do a bit of um, supply teaching in a school and began to think about getting them to think about equality. So I began to do some, some work around um, education and policies and everything else. And we got a, a, a really good education equality set policy in that school. And then came along section 28. So that was kind of interesting because I had got the Equality Act in there and was working and I was out in the school. The staff knew I was gay, the kids knew I was gay and then boom, out comes 28. So I'm then linked in with the group that are based in the Drill Hall. Now the Drill Hall is an amazing space in London fabulous theatre um, run by um, Julie Parker and we met there and Ian McKellen, Michael Cashman, Carol Waddis, various people who were involved in the arts met together to fight Section 28. I was the only education person there so I was trying to get them to recognise what was happening in education um, and it was very powerful and Obviously, people know that Michael, you know, Cashman, you know, came out and had had the big kiss and all the rest of it. And he then went on to be an MEP. Ian McKellen came out and has, you know, been a total champion around the issues forever. Um, so a lot came out of that. And obviously Stonewall came out of that as well. Um, so it was a very important thing, that arts lobby fighting about Section 28. And we had this amazing benefit. And there's something um, there, there is, in fact, a wonderful podcast which talks about this incredible benefit. Who was anybody who was anybody came to it. And the entire evening were LGBT people, um, authors, performers, etc. It was it was an extraordinary night. We had lots of did lots of press and the press would come to the arts lobby because, of course, you had all these, you know, semi famous. I mean, they weren't as famous as they are now. People there when I held press conferences for education, you know, a man and a dog might turn up. But we did lots of work. I, I would do all the um, write up all the stuff to enable them to, to educate the lords and the MPs around what was happening around in education. So it was I was doing really boring stuff, but, you know, crucial stuff. But I can remember one particular day having all this stuff written up, typed up. Um, and I'd actually bought myself an Amstrad to enable me to fight Section 28 because an electric typewriter just didn't. You know, you just cover it with with Tipex. So it was hopeless. So Amstrad to fight 28. Weird reasons why you get into computers. But that was mine. Um, and I can remember this day I typed all this up and then, of course, I had to get it photocopied. Well, <laughs> it, it, again, it feels weird. I mean, photocopies weren't that brilliant at that point. 
and I was going around to the whole various voluntary groups photocopying about 50 copies and then the photo machine would die and I'd bring up another copy and go another organization and go and get another 50 done it does feel it sound weird I mean we're doing all this without mobile phones without the internet without anything anyway you know section 28 got passed schools out of which I was a member at that point were doing all sorts of things to try and get the message out about still the need to, to promote um the existence of LGBT people. And I was a member of the NEU, the Na National Union of Teachers, as it was then. And I went to them and I said, look, I, I think that Section 28 actually does not legally affect schools because all, Margaret Thatcher had already passed the Local Management of Schools Act, which took schools out of local authorities. And Section 28 was based on local authorities. So the NUT went away, they got a solicitor, they looked at it, and that was the case. So solicit, NUT sent letters round to all schools saying, technically, Section 28 does not apply to schools. Well, you know that nobody took any notice of that. And you know the extraordinary shadow that Section 28 went on to schools for 15 years. And there are some amazing stories in on your podcasts. I mean, I've listened to some of the, of, of the people talking about the, the profound effect that it had on them, both as teachers and as students. And the book that um, Big Gay Adventure um, has done as well. You know, teachers are talking about that as well. So it is an extraordinary 15 years. But I think one of the things about Section 28 and the fight about it was, I mean, the, the, the level of creativity that went on to fight that was phenomenal. Ironically, I was in the House of Lords when it finally got passed. And I was there on the galleries sitting next to Sheila Hancock, who'd been very supportive of, of fighting it. And across the gallery, I could see this bunch of women and we had nodded and waved, or clearly a bunch of lesbians. When it got passed, I was desperate for a cigarette because I was still smoking then, left to get it, heard this incredible amount of noise, walked back in to see the, where all those women were sitting, an empty bench, looked down, and there was the rope and the women had gone down. So I missed the magic moment of the dykes abseiling into, uh, into the House of Lords, hysterical. But schools out, tiny though we were, really worked really hard during that whole 15 years. And we would hold conferences for LGBT teachers. And the last four or five years were in the drill hall. And Ian McKellen came along to them, various other people came. And we did have that, but, but we didn't get the reach, although we, we had a very, you know, um, I can't remember when we would have had the first page on the websites on, on the very early internet. But as soon as there was an internet, um, Stephen Bonham, who was the chair at that point, got us, a, got us a page and we were up there. And one of the first things we did was to get the message out that when we were talking about LGB or LNG, we would have been talking about in those days, we were talking about the full diversity of our community. Now, I was really sick and tired of um, job descriptions and people saying, we welcome everyone. Didn't cut with me. I had been ignored for so long. We had been, everyone did not cover LG, LNG or black people or anything. So what I wanted to do was to make it really clear that we were absolutely talking about everybody in the community. So the very first page on that very early, um, internet page probably not the right word at that stage but anyway the, the 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 page said schools out said we are and then we had a whole list 
men, women, young, old, Jews, Gentiles, middle class, working class, work, you know, etc. So we did this whole long list. So we were absolutely adamant that we were about everyone, that we weren't just about white gay men. And, and that's been an absolute golden thread through all the work that I've done and all the work that, that, that Schools Out has done. So when finally, um, and I'm leaping out, leaving out all sorts of things, but, but finally, when Section 28 went, we had the Labour Party in and they were talking about a single Equality Act. Now, that was very exciting. And at that stage, I was working very closely with a gentleman called Paul Patrick, who was teaching in a school in Southeast London. I was living in Southeast London at the time. And he had done the most amazing work. He's well worth looking up. He has, alas, since died, which is, you know, he's like a brother to me. So it's really appalling that I've lost him. Um, and he was doing amazing work in the school. He was one of the first gay men to ad adopt a young gay man. He did all sorts of things and he worked in the Inner Education Authority, producing an information of all the, the stuff that was available. He did videos. So he'd been doing amazing work. And he and I had, had run a very small company together called Chrysalis, which was doing training. So I was going out to schools and training, etc. And we talked and we thought, you know, Black History Month is, is out there. Maybe we need an LGBT History Month and maybe this is the time to try it. So. 2004, we go to the Department of Education, we tell them their ideas, they're not terribly interested. We tell them the kernel, which we need a web page, which will have some resources on it, and it will have a calendar. And the calendar was really important to us that we could have a calendar on there so everybody could put their events on because we didn't have the capacity or even the wish to be running this. What we wanted to do was to facilitate people doing their own thing. That was the whole concept and the calendar therefore was crucial to enable that to happen. So we don't hear from the DFE, nothing's happening. In the summer, I think, oh, for heaven's sake. So I'm at a big Amnesty International conference on LGBT. So I just announced February, we're going to have February 2005, it's going to be LGBT History Month. And we chose February because at that stage, it was a quiet time in the, in the school uh, syllabus. And it also had a half term. And for that, that was important because teachers were still very scared to do stuff. I mean, there'd, there'd been all this difficulty about doing stuff that even though we'd said it was still legal. Um, but libraries were doing some good stuff. So we thought, OK, if we have a half term. Teachers, kids, parents might see in their library some things celebrating LGBT History Month, and it might give them confidence to take it back into the schools. So that was our sort of raison d'etre. So we still haven't heard from the DFE. I got a very close friend at that stage who is somebody who can do things with, with the internet and, has, and, and is starting to, to build the website. And I'm in Southwark, which is doing some really exciting stuff. And there's a Southwark anti-homophobic forum on which I'm on and we're working with the police, looking at the whole issue of dealing with hate crime, et cetera. And they've just appointed a young man to look at LGBT issues. Um, and interestingly enough, Lynn's in Southwark at the same time. So she knows this guy, but we don't know each other at that point, which is, you know, it's, it's amazing how these links have, have come up. So I go to him and I say, you know, can you help us? We, we want to launch LGBT History Month. And Tate Modern is fairly new in Southwark. And he goes to them and fortuitously we get a space in the cinema at Tate Modern and we launch it. Now, 
if you find early videos of that, it's hysterical because there are 13 people on the stage and there's probably about 40 in the audience. And the reason why there are 13 people on the stage is because I wanted to make it abundantly clear that we were talking about the entire community. So I had three trans people on that stage at that point, one of whom was Grayson Perry. I had um, Linda Bellos, who was, was representing at that stage, obviously being a mother, a, 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 um, an out lesbian and, and a, a Jew, and also um, you know, somebody who'd done a massive amount of work in Lambeth. Some of her, her views at the moment are problematic, but at that stage she was you know, 100% there and doing great stuff. We had another Jewish person, I had a Sikh, I had, so you, you get this, the idea that we had the whole range, plus I had an LGBT ally in Anna Rabin, a name probably that doesn't mean much to many people, but she was a, a, an agony aunt, although hated being called that, who was always pro and supportive of LGBT issues. So there was this launch with 13 people up there, making it abundantly clear from the start that we were LGBT plus, and that we've added the plus now for obvious reasons. But it's been a passion of mine to make sure that when we're talking about it, that we have, we're talking about the full diversity of the community. And it's one of the things that when I was doing anti-racist training or anti-homophobic training, I would always try and have um, work with a black person or an Asian person, etc. And it was one of the things that I did when after the Stephen Lawrence um, report came out. And if you don't know what the Stephen Lawrence report is, it's worth looking it up. It's a very powerful report which enables us to finally call out the Metropolitan Police as a racist organization. Um, and I delivered a lot of training to both police officers and the criminal um, CPS. And Often we were actually working in twos, which was very exciting. So we could have, I would work with a black person or an Asian person, or I'd work with a straight person. And, and, and I would be, when we would do anti-homophobic training. And it's very powerful when you do that, because it means that, that I can be more, when I'm working with a black person, I can be more challenging as a white person around tackling racism. And when, I, when we're doing anti-homophobic person, when I've got a straight person, she can be doing more. So it's, it's a really powerful way of working. Anyway, so. We launch LGBT History Month. It's really amazing. I've said to the DFE who finally give us a small amount of money, um, if we have 10 events on the website um, in the first year, I'll be thrilled. We actually have over 100, which is extraordinary. And I think it says so much about our community. And if you look at the website now, there are, you know, we'll have at least you know, 500, 600, 700 events happening all around the country. And a lot of them will be done by volunteers. A lot of them will be done by um, organizations as well, but a lot of them are volunteer led. And I think it's it's such a, it, it's, it's, it just shows how creative and passion, uh, passionate our community is. Over the years, LGBT History Month has evolved massively. If you think back, you know, we'll go back to where we were. We, we had a, um, a badge from the first year um, Tony Malone designed it and that was our logo and then for the first three or four years it, it remained the same and then somebody maybe me but maybe somebody else from in the, in the committee came up with the idea of having of involving universities to actually design the badge so either um, Paul had died by then and my then co-chair Tony Fennick or I would then go to a, a university tell them about LGBT History Month and they would then design it. And then we evolved the idea of having a theme. 
and that came up after um, when it was London was getting the sport, getting the Olympics. So for two years, we we concentrated on sport. And it's fascinating. If you look at the resources that we came back up with then around sport and the number of people who are out in then and, you know, compare it to where we are now, it, the, you know, the involvement is, you know, the, the evolution is extraordinary. So LGBT History Month has evolved massively. We have a theme every year. We have amazing people. All the Schools Out Committee is, and, and Lynn will tell you more about Schools Out Committee at the moment because she's become chair of trustees and has just turned us around powerfully, are all volunteers. So all the, all the work that you see on all the websites are produced by passionate volunteers who give of their time after a day's work, you know, which is just phenomenal on their kitchen tables or whatever. Um, so LGBT History Month now, it's a thing. And no local authority in England worth its salt won't do something around LGBT History Month. I think it's, you know, it's, it's quite phenomenal. So that's there now. We're gearing up to, to get it together. People are now, I think one of the things that's really exciting and Lynn's developing that is also how business are, are now use, using it. And the difference between LGBT History Month and Pride Month, I think is very clear. LGBT History Month is very much about visibility within the community, within schools, within um, places to actually look at our existence, to make us visible and to be aware of our history. And for me, the fact that we were so invisible in schools, I mean, I, I heard nothing about LGBT people and it wasn't until you know, later I learned that some of the people that I had been studying were members of the LGBT community. And I can't tell you how angry I was, you know, the, the difference it would have made to me as a kid, knowing, you know, I was studying Virginia Woolf, knowing that Virginia Woolf was bisexual would have been phenomenal. So the lying that has been, you know, that we have been lied to by omission so much. And I think that's, that's the thing that, that LGBT History Month is about, is, is making that lie non-existent, making us visible, making us there and enabling people. And the thing about LGBT people is that we we are not sat down by our families and told our history because our families don't know it. Um, you know, if you're a member of, of usually, you, you know, the families will tell you about what grandpa did and what grandma did and brothers and sisters, etc. We don't get that. So we have to find our, our heritage and our history elsewhere. And for me, LGBT history is as much about educating ourselves as it is about educating, you know, straight people and enabling straight people to recognize that they owe, that they are in such debt to so many amazing, creative and exciting people that, that have made their lives easier in so many different ways. So what an incredible story. Um, I've had a, a very busy and very difficult week and I woke up this morning feeling really tired. So I'm so thankful for how easy you have made my job this morning. As you were speaking, I was writing down questions and within the next few minutes, you would answer those questions and in more detail than I could have hoped for. Um, I felt like I feel like the last kind of 20 minutes of you speaking was a lesson in history and a lesson in activism and a lesson in education. I mean, I would love to come to a question now, but I'm a little bit blown away. Adam, I don't know if you're more coherent than me. Well, I'm similarly speechless, but just first of all, thank you for sharing. I mean, it was just to sit and listen to you talk for 45 minutes, 50 minutes about, you know, obviously a very short version of your history because the incredible things you've done in your career is it's, it's awe-inspiring. But just to hear the impact 
just alone the kind of LGBT History Month is incredible. And you know, Joe and I talked before the podcast started talking about you know for all of our teaching career, it's existed. So to hear the way in which it is, you know, the embryo at the beginning of it, how it's developed, and now how it's kind of influencing other areas beyond education is just incredible. So first of all, thank you so much for the work you've done on it and the amount of people it's influenced is just incredible. What do you sort of see the, for the future of it? You've touched upon there its growth within businesses and some things like that. What do you what do you see next for LGBT History Month? I, I think the thing about LGBT History Month still, although we push it, I don't think it's anywhere near as diverse as it needs to be. So I think that that that's a really big thing that that I think we really need to get across to people um, that recognition of the diversity of the LGBT community. And, and one of the things that is quite exciting, which has happened because I set up a, um, a podcast with Rodney Wilson, who was a gentleman who started LGBT History Month in America. He and I, I did a podcast with him last year, I think, and he's, his life has shifted. So he's now putting a lot of time and energy to actually pulling together the concept of LGBT History Month internationally. And Lynn and I were on a, um, a, a a zoom call with I think about 20 people yeah it was um it was something that we'd both so I think I'd started to pull together people internationally Rodney had um it all actually kicked off with Italy um Italian LGBT history month which is April and kind of was like actually we should be cutting together um and we had our first meeting the other week which was amazing and just so many different countries either wanting to set up a prospective history month or having a history month and really talking about how it needs to mean something the date of that month needs to mean something specific to that country um and that's going to be a place in which to share ideas so it's quite exciting it's been fantastic to see the amount of i mean every year there's an amazing buzz around lgbt history month which is wonderful to see but it just for some reason whether it's because i've been looking for it more on social media i'm not sure but there's a real buzz this year like it's been great to hear the conversations around colleagues about the things they're going to do in their school um so with that in mind could you tell us a bit more about the theme of this month's lgbt history month the amazing resources that are available the things we can all do as okay uh, as well educators? Uh, Andrew Dobbin, who is our promotions guy, um, usually often comes up with with our themes and he links it to various interesting things of anniversaries, etc. And he came up with this because we hadn't done much art. We've done some pretty heavy stuff. And if you look on the website, I think um, I can't remember if on the website we actually say where we've had launches. Every November we have a launch and they're always in very prestigious places. So we've been in the British Museum. We had an amazing one in the Royal Courts of Justice, which was just incredible. We had... Um, the then Attorney General, um, Lady um, Baroness Scotland, who took great delight in talking about buggery. It was very clear that she really wanted to talk about buggery, but she was also, as a black woman, very aware of the incredible move, how, how powerful it was for us as a bunch of LGBT people to be celebrating LGBT History Month in the Royal Courts of Justice, a place where so many LGBT people would have gone and would have had the most appalling, terrifying and appalling times. So to sort of reclaim that space, and we had lots of stalls all around it, was amazing, absolutely extraordinary. So we've been, and we, we had a, a time at Bletchley Park, we've done it in a school, the time we did it in the British Museum had a really profound effect on museums. And I think we have really, and two or three um, museum curators have quietly said to me, you know, we wouldn't be where we are now with getting museums to be more inclusive of LGBT if it wasn't for the month. The month has sort of injected that. And I think that's one of the exciting things about LGBT History Month, that although Paul and I were initially thinking schools, and interestingly enough, Rodney, who started LGBT History Month, was a teacher. And I think 
the Italians are teachers as well. So it's really interesting how often people who want to kick off History Month are teachers, but it how it then goes out into the whole community. And I think for me, that's the, the crucial thing that it does both. So it's crucial that we do that. So we have um, the, the theme this year is art in politics and looking at how um, artists have work, used their work to be political. And I think it's really exciting to recognize how, how art is such a crucial place. And I think it's a, it, it links to my passion about culture because while I'm, I, you know, I work to try and get the legislation in place and to get the, the bureaucracy working, you've, the culture is crucial and culture has a very profound effect. So, you know, when you think about the effect that It's a Sin has had and dear Russell T. Davis, I mean, he's, he's such a joy and he's one of our patrons. He supported a lot of the work that we've done around theatre because, again, we part of our work is also to produce commission theatre. So I think the cultural effect that has, and I think art has had the most profound effect on, on our, vis our vision. Um, and my passion is to visibilize it. So to, to have a, a, um, a theme on, on, on visibility, on, on art is, is, is wonderful. So we have these amazing five artists, one of whom is British, Doris Brabham Hatt, which I hadn't heard of before. But and when you start looking at her work, it's amazing. You know, she should be much better known. Communist, suffragette, out lesbian, living with her lover, in, extraordinary, you know. And then Keith Haring, who probably everybody has, who's in the art world or, or sort of periphery will know, a very prolific and exciting man, anti, doing lots of anti-AIDS work. Sue's talked us through School Out and around LGBT History Month. And as Adam mentioned in the introduction, we're really fortunate today to also be joined by Lynn, um, who is the Chair of Trustees for Schools Out. Lynn, could you tell us a little bit about the work that Schools Out is doing now? Um, so Schools Out yeah. had founded four, I suppose, more four themes or four main areas of work. Yeah. So we've got LGBT plus History Month, which obviously is most well known. And we want to make sure that everybody feels that they're part of it because it's everybody's history and really want to continue to promote that. And we've definitely worked um, to transform our resources this year and our social media and I think that's definitely had an impact but also to get back in with schools and to make sure that education was still set at the center of it whether that be education in a school setting or a work setting and one of those things that we brought that I brought in was a LGBT history month badge competition for schools and this year's badge is actually from a young person from the proud trust and it's amazing it's absolutely fantastic and we've had so much interest from schools to actually come on board and design the badge so that they can become a part of history and I think it's just an amazing way to really engage and ensure that schools can have a vehicle if they are not so far down their DNI journey there is a vehicle that they can easily access to do something um, Ideally, Schools Out Vision wants to pepper pot LGBT throughout the curriculum to make sure that LGBT isn't just the one lesson, that it's something that is just embedded. And it's that's LGBT representation in its full diversity. So Alan Turing is amazing, but often we, we centre on one person or one particular part and forget there's a massive, rich, diverse history. And it's continuing to happen. It's continuing to evolve. Like the Queer Museum finally got a home. That's like our next step in history, which is amazing. Um, so from, from the LGBT History Month point of view, 
we really want to make sure that we have resources that enable as many people as possible to take part. And at the end of the month, we'll be sending out a survey that we want to encourage as many people as possible to enter, just to make sure we are on track, that we're doing the resources that people need so they're part of it. And during this year, we're going to have a brand spanking new website, which is we desperately need. Um, and it's definitely been pivoting everything in the pandemic to uh, which everybody's had to do to provide different services as really means that we really need to invest in that. So that's something that we're working on at the moment. We then have Out in the Past. So Out in the Past is an international LGBT plus history festival. And that was started by Jeff Evans in Schools Out at the time. And we work in partnership with Out in the Past to deliver this festival. And this is museums and libraries across the UK and abroad who puts on events during History Month and through to April. So it starts in February and ends in April. Um, we went completely virtual last year. We still had many people take part, which was great. And we've got something this year, I think we've got about 30 hubs that are taking part. And hubs means a museum or a library. And that they're doing events mixtures. So some are hybrid, some are in person and online. Some are just online, some are just in person. And that's brilliant because that's accessible for everybody. Some, some are working with schools, some are not. And that's just, and, that, and we had something like 80 presentations. So we call out for history presentations and that can be on the history of your staff network. That could be on a particular historical figure. It could be a particular area of history um, or on a particular organization. And so we had 80 people come forward with presentations. They're reviewed by an academic panel to make sure that they're not that they're academic because that would be wrong to say because some of them are about lived experiences just to make sure they've got everything in place and that they're LGBT plus inclusive. Wanted to make sure that was all threaded through. And then we match those presentations with the hubs so that they have people to speak on LGBT history and work with during the month. So that kicks off, um, it actually kicks off on the first as well. So it's very busy. So there'll be lots more on that on social media. So that's our partnership with Out in the Past. We also have our work with theatre so we have a play that's going to be put on in, um, I believe it's June, I'll need to check that, but um, it's we've, about Huddersfield and the fact that the first Pride out of London was held in Huddersfield and it's called The, world, the Day the World Came to Huddersfield and they're doing a whole range of activities. So during History Month, they actually have a shop front which is going to project various images and artwork from the month. To do with the to do with that particular area of history so they've got a play they've got a shop front in Huddersfield which is going to have the name of the play on the top and it's going to have a projection of all the different um, artist collaborations about that particular event then later on they're going to have a actual re recreation of the event with people speaking like public theatre and then two nights in Salford in an actual theatre venue and so we help fund some of that work um, and support that work to continue from different plays. And there's a few more in the pipeline. So that's one other aspect. We then have our teaching aspect called the classroom. So Schools Out, from its very beginning, did classroom resources for teachers. The very first ones, one of my first jobs with Sue many years ago was to actually sort out one of her cupboards. And they had 
all of the kind of the OHP projector slides. So that was people that don't know what an OHP projector was. That was something where you wrote on a clear piece of plastic that was projected onto the wall before you had computers and everything else. So I was organizing those particular slide packs for her at one point in the dim and distant past. Um, and yeah, so we that was one of the things that they was very passionate about resources. So they brought them together into a particular website called the classroom by key stages so that it was accessible for teachers and that they were not just the gay lessons. So it was a lesson that you would have for history, but it had LGBT people's lives embedded into it. And that's been an amazing resource. It also brought in the concepts of within schools out, so they brought in the concepts of usualizing and visibilizing. And the, the Sue came up with the idea of usualizing because normal has other connotations, whereas usualizing was a real way to bring in to usualize LGBT plus lives and to get them embedded into the curriculum. And it talks all about the concepts of usualizing and visibilizing to how that can help change things and how that can help move culture on. And that's a brilliant resource tool that's out there. We've now, um, with education, things move quickly and rules change and the curriculum changes. Um, so we are in a process of updating that website and the Proud Trust worked with us and reviewed our lesson resources and they have we've uh, redone a load of the lesson based on our lesson plans, um, which they've got on their website, which they give out free for teachers. And we're in the process of continuing to add to the classroom. And excitingly last year, we were able to get a small amount of funding and have our first paid person to work for us one day a week on a specific project, which is a miracle considering we've been had so long with just volunteers who have been amazing volunteers, but we, it's great to have a dedicated person in. And they've, they've been working on STEM resources. So her name's Sarah, she's been working on fabulous STEM resources, especially around STEM careers, because that's something, because the, the science curriculum is obviously quite specific. It's an easy way because you have to talk about careers to bring the career side into it. And so she's done a whole range of those. She's been speaking at Pride in Education Conference, the brilliant conference by Lila. So yeah, it's been amazing. Um, and that's been a real ev helpful evolution. And we will be putting out a call for some more volunteers to come on a teaching panel to review the resources. Um, and that will be going out in March. So we've got the classroom side of things. We've got the history month side of things. We've got out in the past and we've got the theater. So there are all sorts of, the, the whole purpose of schools out is to educate out prejudice in education. Lynn, thank you so much for that. Your, your passion comes through really clearly um, in terms of the work you're doing. And there's an amazing set of resources there for educators and all people to engage with. So thank you for that. And we really encourage people to look at them. Um, so before we draw to a close, um, is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Well, yes, uh, there's two stories that I, that I think are really important and, and things may have changed in schools now. I mean, listening to, to some of your podcasts and listening to other teachers, I don't think the, the culture in schools is quite like it, it was. But when I was teaching in Australia, there was a class of kids who just took again me. And with all the skills I had at my fingertips then, which probably, you know, weren't as much as I had later on, I could not turn them around. And to be frank, they bullied me. It was horrendous. It was the same school that I was working with those senior girls and taken into the into the prison and we'd done productions. So it was really interesting. There was this really just this one cohort of girls who just 
really found me problematic and really treated me atrociously. Um, I left the school and then I was invited back to see a production that the youngsters that I'd been working with had done because they were so excited about it and they wanted me to see what, what they had produced. So I walk into the school and really excited and really looking forward to see it. And I am met by this bunch of cohort of girls who had given me such hell and I just wanted to turn around and walk away. But they said, oh, oh, Sue, 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 we wanted to see you. And I said, why? Well, we're really sorry. We're really sorry we treated you so badly. We, we now understand what you were on about. We now understand. We hope you didn't leave because of us, but, but we're really sorry. And that was so moving. That was really interesting. Then later on, when I was in London and I was a supply teacher and I was out and proud, um, I'm walking along a corridor and a kid comes up to me and says, so who are you going to rape today? <laughs> I'm thinking, what? I'm a big swallow attempted to, to deal with the situation as best I could, talked to my deputy head who had been supported me um, the whole time in that school. And you know, there's a big story about why I'm in this school and not another one, but we haven't got time for that. Um, and I tell her and we deal with it sort of well, but not terribly well. Six months later, I'm in a classroom, I'm teaching. A new pupil is in, has arrived into the classroom and I can tell the others, hear the others telling her that I'm a lesbian and she freaks and she says oh that's outrageous oh that's dreadful you know it's, and the kid who had said who are you going to rape today turned to her and said that's Sue she's fine don't worry about it and I thought well that is really interesting you know you, people shift people change one other thing because we've, you've heard we talked about language I have, in, when I was teaching in the, in the supply schools in London, I had shifted around language and I was determined that the kids would not call me miss. And my reason was I have missed nothing. You either call me Ms or Sue. And I, that whole thing about language, and I'm sure Len has already talked about usualizing, but the whole thing about language is so important. And so I think, and I heard one of your, your um, teachers and I can't remember which one it was saying that they want the kids to call them mooks and I think that talking about language and how we are um, spoken about and how the teachers how the students speak to us seems to me crucial so I think it's that whole exploring about how we get labeled and how we are ourselves and it was interesting how you know I insisted and the school wasn't terribly comfortable with it but I said well cope with it um, I was a supply teacher they could get rid of me if they liked but for me, it was crucial that this word miss, and it's used in such an unpleasant way often, I got rid of. But it, it stuck with them because I said, you know, I've missed nothing. You either call me Ms or Sue. I think that conversation about language is really important. Um, the brilliant educator that you, you talked about then um, from our previous podcast is called B, and they're a fantastic educator and really yes. doing a lot of work around um, the language that is used in school. That's right. Um, and we've been discussing it um, in our school recently um, as well. Thank you both so much for your time this morning. I, I said, Sue, earlier that your work this morning has made my job as a podcaster really easy, but actually your lifetime work has made my job as a queer educator not only easy, but possible. Your work and the work of Schools Out and the work of LGBT History Month, all of these things have made the work that Adam and I try to do now possible. We started this podcast to document what we felt was a really pivotal moment of change for inclusive education. And 
it's been a true pleasure speaking with you this morning because you and your work really shifted the mast of inclusive education and redirected its route and started us off on this journey. And Adam and I could not be doing what we're doing now. Many of the people who we speak to on this podcast could not be doing what they're doing now if it weren't for you and your peers fighting to open up this space for us. It's been brilliant this morning hearing this history and hearing how you and Lynn and Schools Out and all the other brilliant people who you work with are continuing this fight with the work that you're doing now. Lynn, Sue, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure this morning. Joe, what an incredible way to kick off season two with Lynn and with Sue. An absolutely fascinating hour. Really amazing. I mean, we've had so many conversations on this podcast and, and privately as well, talking about Section 28, talking about these kind of important moments of change for queer inclusive education. And Sue Sanders was in the room when they happened <laughs> and is able to talk us through kind of what that looked like and how it felt at the time and how we've kind of reached this point now where we're able to do this podcast. Absolutely. And just the names that she referenced to that, you know, I've, I've sat and read the history of this so much and for her to talk about it conversationally, like with her friends or her colleagues and her peers, just incredible. Amazing. And we said in the podcast, LGBT plus History Month has kind of existed for, the, for all of our careers. So it's kind of amazing to hear the history of that and how it's grown to become what it is now. I mean, I have the website in front of me now, lgbtplushistorymonth.co.uk. There's a calendar on there where you can find all of the events that are happening. There's resources specifically for businesses, for educators, posters, PowerPoints, history, fact sheets about important queer people in history. It's an incredible resource and I can't wait to hear what schools and what teachers have done this year to mark LGBT History Month. Absolutely. It's a real one-stop shop of amazing resources for LGBT History Month. And we really encourage everybody to check it out. And there's some great hashtags you can use to follow this month to see the other great work that people are doing in schools. Hashtag LGBTHM22, hashtag LGBT plus HM, and hashtag Educate Out Prejudice. So all of those are great ways to follow what other educators are doing on Twitter and share some of those resources. And finally, the way you can show your support for Schools Out by buying one of the fantastic badges for this year's LGBT History Month. They really are beautiful and on the website you can book by them for your whole school, for your whole staff team. I really do encourage getting on there and getting those badges into your schools. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, we'd be really grateful if you could leave a review or a five-star rating. This really helps other educators to find these stories. If you want to continue the conversation or comment on this week's episode, you can find us on Twitter at Pride Progress. Thanks for listening.